chapters 11 through 15 of Against Novianius by St. Jerome. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In the above discussion, the Apostle has taught that the believer ought not to depart from the unbeliever, but remain in marriage as the faith found them, and that each man, whether married or single, should continue as he was then baptized into Christ. And then he suddenly introduces the metaphors of circumcision and uncircumcision, of bond and free, and under those metaphors treats of the married and unmarried. Was any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let each man abide in the calling wherein he was called. Was thou called being a bondservant? Care not for it. But even if thou canst become free, use it rather. For he that was called in the Lord, being a bondservant, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, he that was called being free is Christ's bondservant. Ye were bought with a price. Become not bondservants of men. Brethren, let each man, wherein he was called, therein abide with God. Some, I suppose, will find fault with the apostles' way of reasoning. I would therefore ask first what we are to infer from his suddenly passing in a discussion concerning husbands and wives to a comparison of Jew and Gentile, bond and free, and then returning when this point is settled to the question about virgins, and telling us, concerning virgins I have no commandment from the Lord. What has a comparison of Jew and Gentile, bond and free, to do with wedlock and virginity? In the next place, how are we to understand the words, Hath any been called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Can a man who has lost his foreskin restore it again at his pleasure? Then, in what sense are we to explain, For he that was called in the Lord, being a bondservant, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, he that was called being free is Christ's bondservant. Fourthly, how is it that he who commanded servants to obey their masters according to the flesh now says, Become not bondservants of men? Lastly, how are we to connect with slavery or with circumcision his saying, Brethren, let each man wherein he was called therein abide with God, which even contradicts his previous opinion. We heard him say, Become not bondservants of men. How can we then possibly abide in the vocation wherein we were called? when many at the time they became believers had masters according to the flesh, whose bondservants they are now forbidden to be. Moreover, what has the argument about our abiding in the vocation wherein we were called to do with circumcision? For in another place the same apostle cries aloud, Behold, I, Paul, tell you, if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. We must conclude, therefore, that a higher meaning should be given to circumcision and uncircumcision, bond and free, and that these words must be taken in close connection with what has gone before. Was anyone called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. If he says, at the time you were called and became a believer in Christ, if I say you were called being circumcised from a wife, that is unmarried, do not marry a wife, that is, do not become uncircumcised lest you lay upon the freedom of circumcision and chastity the burden of marriage. Again, if anyone was called an uncircumcision, let him not be circumcised. If you had a wife, he says, when you believed, do not think the faith of Christ a reason for disagreement. 
because God has called us in peace. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God. For neither celibacy nor marriage availeth anything without works. Since even faith, which is specially characteristic of Christians, if it have not works, is said to be dead. And vestal virgins and Juno's widows might upon these terms be numbered with the saints. Let each man, in the vocation wherein he was called, therein abide whether he had or had not a wife when he believed. Let him remain in that condition in which he was when called. Accordingly, he does not so strongly urge virgins to be married as forbid divorce. And as he debars those who have wives from putting them away, so he cuts off from virgins the power of being married. Thou wast called being of slave? Heed it not. But even if thou canst become free, use it rather. Even if you have, he says, a wife, and are bound to her, and pay her due, and have not power over your own body, or if, to speak more clearly, you are the bondservant of your wife, be not sad upon that account, nor sigh for the loss of your virginity. But even if you can find some cases of discord, do not for the sake of thoroughly enjoying the liberty of chastity seek your own welfare by destroying another. Keep your wife a while, and do not go too fast for her lagging footsteps. Wait till she follows. If you are patient, your spouse will become a sister. For he that was called in the Lord, being a bondservant, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, he that was called being free is Christ's bondservant. He gives his reasons for not wishing wives to be forsaken. He therefore says, I command that Gentiles who believe on Christ do not abandon the married state in which they were before embracing the faith. For he who had a wife when he became a believer is not so strictly devoted to the service of God as virgins and unmarried persons. But, in a manner, he has more freedom, and the reins of his bondage are relaxed, and while he is the bondservant of a wife, he is, so to speak, the freedman of the Lord. Moreover, he who, when called by the Lord, had not a wife, and was free from the bondage of wedlock, he is truly Christ's bondservant. What happiness to be the bondservant, not of a wife, but of Christ, to serve not the flesh, but the spirit. For he who is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. There was some fear that by saying, Wast thou called being a bondservant, care not for it. But even if thou canst become free, use it rather. He might seem to have flouted continence, and to have given us up to the slavery of marriage. He therefore makes a remark which removes all cavil. You were bought with a price, become not servants of men. We have been redeemed with the most precious blood of Christ. The Lamb was slain for us, and having been sprinkled with hyssop and the warm drops of his blood, we have rejected poisonous pleasure. Why do we, at whose baptism Pharaoh died and all his host was drowned, again turn back in our hearts to Egypt, and after the manna, angel's food, cipher the garlic and the onions and the cucumbers and Pharaoh's meat. Having discussed marriage and continency, he at length comes to virginity and says, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, but I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. I think, therefore, that this is good by reason of the present distress, namely, that it is good for a man to be as he is. Here our opponent goes utterly wild with exultation. This is his strongest battering ram, 
with which he shakes the wall of virginity. See, he says, the apostle confesses that as regards virgins, he has no commandment of the Lord. And he who had with authority laid down the law respecting husbands and wives does not dare to command what the Lord has not enjoined. And rightly too, for what is enjoined is commanded, and what is commanded must be done. And that which must be done implies punishment if it be not done. For it is useless to order a thing to be done and yet leave the individual free to do it or not to do it. If the Lord had commanded virginity, he would have seemed to condemn marriage and to do away with the seed plot of mankind, of which virginity itself is a growth. If he had cut off the root, how was he to expect fruit? If the foundations were not first laid, how was he to build the edifice and put on the roof to cover all? Excavators toil hard to remove mountains. The bowels of the earth are pierced in the search for gold. And when the tiny particles, first by the blast of the furnace, then by the hand of the cunning workman, have been fashioned into an ornament, men do not call him blessed who has separated the gold from the dross, but him who wears the beautiful gold. Do not marvel, then, if, placed as we are, amid temptations of the flesh and incentives to vice, the angelic life be not exacted of us, but merely recommended. If advice be given, a man is free to proffer obedience. If there be a command, he is a servant bound to compliance. I have no commandment, he says, of the Lord, but I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. If you have no commandment of the Lord, how dare you give judgment without orders? The apostle will reply, Do you wish me to give orders where the Lord has offered a favor rather than laid down a law? The great curator and fashioner, knowing the weakness of the vessel which he made, left virginity open to those whom he addressed. And shall I, the teacher of the Gentiles, who have become all things to all men, that I might seek gain? So I lay upon the necks of weak believers, from the very first, the burden of perpetual chastity. Let them begin with short periods of release from the marriage bond, and give themselves unto prayer. And when they have tasted the sweets of chastity, they may desire the perpetual possession of what, wherewith, they were temporarily delighted. The Lord, when tempted by the Pharisees, and asked whether, according to the law of Moses, it was permitted to put away a wife, forbade the practice altogether. After weighing his words, the disciples said to him, If the case of the man is so with his wife, it is not expedient to marry. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, but they to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs which are so born from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs which are made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs which made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. The reason is plain why the apostles said, Concerning virgins I have no commandment of the Lord. Surely because the Lord had previously said, All men cannot receive the word, but they to whom it is given. And he that is able to receive it, let him receive it. The master of the Christian race offers the reward, invites candidates to the course, holds in his hand the prize of virginity, points to the fountain of purity, and cries aloud, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. He does not say, You must drink, you must run, willing or unwilling. But whoever is willing and able to run and to drink, he shall conquer he shall be satisfied. 
and therefore christ loves virgins more than others because they willingly give what was not commanded them and it indicates greater grace to offer what you are not bound to give than to render what is exacted of you the apostles contemplating the burden of a wife exclaimed if the case of a man is so with his wife it is not expedient to marry our lords thought well of their view you rightly think said he that it is not expedient for a man who is hastening to the kingdom of heaven to take a wife but it is a hard matter and all men do not receive the saying but they to whom it has been given some are eunuchs by nature others by violence of men those eunuchs please me who are such not of necessity but of free choice willingly do i take them into my bosom who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake and in order to worship me have renounced the condition of their birth you must now explain the words those who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake if they who have made themselves eunuchs have the reward of the kingdom of heaven it follows that they who have not made themselves such cannot be placed with those who have he who is able he says to receive it let him receive it it is a mark of great faith and of great virtue to be the pure temple of god to offer oneself a whole burnt offering and according to the same apostle to be holy both in body and in spirit these are the eunuchs who thinking themselves dry trees because of their impotence hear by the mouth of isaiah that they have a place prepared in heaven for sons and daughters their type is Elbed Melech, the eunuch in Jeremiah, and the eunuch of Queen Candace in the Acts of the Apostles, who on account of the strength of his faith gained the name of a man. These are they to whom Clement, who was the successor of the Apostle Peter, and of whom the Apostle Paul makes mention, wrote letters directing almost the whole of his discourse to the subject of virgin purity. After them, there is a long series of apostolic men martyrs and men illustrious no less for holiness than for eloquence with whom we may very easily become acquainted through their own writings i think therefore he says that it is good for the present distress what is this distress which in contempt of the marriage tie longs for the liberty of virginity woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days we have not here a condemnation of harlots and brothels of those damnation there is no doubt but of the swelling womb and the wailing infancy the fruit as well as the work of marriage for it is good for a man so to be if it is good for a man so to be it is bad for a man not so to be art thou bound unto a wife seek not to be loosed art thou loosed from a wife seek not a wife each one of us has his appointed bounds let me have what is mine and keep your own if thou art bound to a wife give her not a bill of divorce if i am loosed from a wife i will not seek a wife as i do not dissolve marriages once contracted so you should not bind what is loosed and at the same time the meaning of the words must be taken into account he who has a wife is regarded as a debtor and he is said to be uncircumcised to be the servant of his wife and like bad servants to be bound but he who has no wife in the first place owes no man anything then is circumcised thirdly is free and lastly is loosed let us run through the remaining points for our author is so voluminous that we cannot linger over every detail but 
and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. It is one thing not to sin, another to do good, and if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Not that the virgin who has once for all dedicated herself to the service of God, for should one of these marry, she will have damnation, because she made of no account her first faith. But if her adversary objects that this saying relates to widows, he replied that it applies with still greater force to virgins, since marriage is forbidden even to widows whose previous marriage had been lawful. For virgins who marry after consecration are rather incestuous than adulterous. And for fear he should by saying, and if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned, again stimulate the unmarried to be married, he immediately checks himself by introducing another consideration, invalidates his previous concession. Yet, says he, such shall have tribulation in the flesh. Who are they who shall have tribulation in the flesh? They to whom he had before indulgently said, But, and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned, and if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Yet such shall have tribulation in the flesh. We, in our inexperience, thought that marriage had at least the joys of the flesh. But if they who are married have tribulation even in the flesh, which is imagined to be the sole source of their pleasure, what else is there to marry for, when in the spirit and in the mind and in the flesh itself there is tribulation? But I would spare you. Thus he says, I allege tribulation as a motive, as though there were not greater obligations to refrain. But this I say, brethren, the time is shortened, that henceforth both those that have wives may be as though they had none. I am by no means now discussing virgins, of whose happiness no one entertains a doubt. I am coming to the married. The time is short. The Lord is at hand. Even though we lived nine hundred years, as did men of old, yet we ought to think that short which must one day have an end and cease to be. But as things are, it is not so much the joy as the tribulation of marriage that is short. Why do we take wives whom we shall soon be compelled to lose? And those that weep, and those that rejoice, and those that buy, and those that use the world as though they wept not, as though they rejoice not, as though they bought not, as though they did not use the world, for the fashion of this world passeth away. If the world which comprehends all things passes away, yea, if the fashion and intercourse of the world vanishes like the clouds, amongst the other works of the world, marriage too will vanish away, for after the resurrection there will be no wedlock. But if death be the end of marriage, why do we not voluntarily embrace the inevitable? And why do we not, encouraged by the hope of the reward, offer to God that which must be wrung from us against our will? He that is unmarried is careful for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married is careful for the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and is divided. Let us look at the difference between the cares of the virgin and those of the married man. The virgin longs to please the Lord, the husband to please his wife, and that he may please her, he is careful for the things of the world, which will, of course, pass away with the world. And he is divided, that is to say, is distracted with manifold cares and miseries. This is not the place to describe the difficulties of marriage and to revel in rhetorical commonplaces. I think I delivered myself fully as regards this point in my argument against Alvidius and in my book which I address to Eustochium.
at all events tertullian while still a young man gave himself full play with this subject and my teacher gregory of nazianus discussed virginity and marriage in some greek verses i now briefly beg my reader to note that in the latin manuscripts we have the reading there is a difference also between the virgin and the wife the words it is true have a meaning of their own and have by me as well as by others been so explained as showing the bearing of the passage yet they lack apostolic authority since the apostles words are as we have translated them he is careful for the things of the world how he may please his wife and he is divided having laid down this he passes to the virgins and the continents and says the woman that is unmarried and the virgin thinks of the things of the lord that she may be holy in body and spirit not every unmarried woman is also a virgin but every virgin is of course unmarried it may be that regard for elegance of expression led him to repeat the same idea by means of another word and speak of a woman unmarried and a virgin or at least he may have wished to give to unmarried the definite meaning of virgin so that we might not suppose him to include harlots united to no one by the fixed bonds of wedlock among the unmarried of what then does she that is unmarried and a virgin think the things of the lord that she may be holy both in body and in spirit supposing there were nothing else and that no greater reward followed virginity this would be motive enough for her choice to think of the things of the lord but he immediately points out the contents of her thoughts that she may be holy both in body and spirit for there are virgins in the flesh not in the spirit whose body is intact their soul corrupt but that virgin is a sacrifice to god whose mind has not been defiled by thought nor her flesh by lust on the other hand she who is married thinks of the things of the world how she may please her husband just as the man who has a wife is anxious for the things of the world how he may please his wife so the married woman thinks of the things of the world how she may please her husband we are not of this world which lieth in wickedness the fashion of which patheth away and concerning which the lord said to the apostles if ye were of the world the world would love its own unless perchance someone might suppose that he was laying the heavy burden of chastity on unwilling shoulders he at once adds his reasons for persuading to it and says and this i say for your profit not that i may cast a snare upon you but for that which is seemly and that ye may attend upon the lord without distraction the latin words do not convey the meaning of the greek what words shall we use to render prosto ev kiron kai ev prostotron to kirio ape restaurius the difficulty of translation accounts for the fact that the clause is completely wanting in latin manuscripts let us however use the passage as we have translated it the apostle does not lay a snare upon us nor does he compel us to be what we do not wish to be but he gives his advice as to what is fair and seemly he would have us attend upon the lord and ever be anxious about that service and await the lord's will so that like active and well-armed soldiers we may obey orders and may do so without distraction which according to ecclesiastes is given to men of this world that they may be exercised thereby 
But if anyone considers that his virgin, that is his flesh, is wanton and boiling with lust, it cannot be brittled. And he must do one of two things, either take a wife or fall. Let him do what he will. He does not sin if he marry. Let him do, he says, what he will, not what he ought. He does not sin if he marries a wife, yet he does not well if he marry. But he that standeth fast in his heart, having no necessity, but hath power as touching his own will, and hath determined this in his own heart to keep his own virgin shall do well. So then, both he that giveth his own virgin in marriage doeth well, and he that giveth her not in marriage shall do better. With marked propriety, he had previously said, He who marries a wife does not sin. Here he tells us, He that keepeth his own virgin doeth well. But it is one thing not to sin, another to do well. Depart from evil, he says, and do good. The former we forsake, the latter we follow. In this last lies perfection. But whereas he says, And he that giveth his virgin in marriage doeth well, it might be supposed that our remark does not hold good. He therefore forthwith detracts from this seeming good and puts it in the shade by comparing it with another, and saying, And he that giveth her not in marriage shall do better. If he had not intended to draw the inference of doing better, he would never have previously referred to doing well. But where there is something good and something better, the reward is not in both cases the same. And where the reward is not one and the same, there, of course, the gifts are different. The difference, then, between marriage and virginity is as great as that between not sinning and doing well. Nay, rather, to speak less harshly, as great as between good and better. He that has ended his discussion of wedlock and virginity and has carefully steered between the two precepts without turning to the right hand or to the left, he has followed the royal road and fulfilled the command not to be righteous overmuch. Now again he compares monogamy with digogamy, and as he had subordinated marriage to virginity, so he makes second marriages inferior to the first, and says, A wife is bound for so long time as her husband liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is free to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she abide as she is, after my judgment. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. He allows second marriages, but to such persons as wish for them and are not able to contain, lest, having waxed wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation, because they have rejected their first faith. And he makes the concession because many had already turned aside after Satan. But, says he, they will be happier if they abide as they are. And he immediately adds the weight of the apostolic authority, after my judgment. And that an apostle's authority might not, like that of an ordinary man, be without weight, he added, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. When he incites to continence, it is not the judgment or spirit of man, but by the judgment and spirit of God. When, however, he grants the indulgence of marriage, he does not mention the Spirit of God, but weighs his judgment with wisdom and adapts the severity of the strain to the weakness of the individual. In this sense, we must take the whole of the following passage. For the woman that hath an husband is bound by law to the husband while he liveth. But if the husband dies, she is discharged from the law of the husband. 
So then if, while the husband liveth, she be joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if the husband die, she is free from the law, so that she is no longer an adulteress, though she be joined to another man. And similarly, the words to Timothy, I desire therefore that the younger widows marry, bear children, rule the household, give none occasion to the adversary for reviling, for already some are turned aside after Satan, and so on. For as on account of the danger of fornication, he allows virgins to marry and makes that excusable, which in itself is not desirable, so to avoid this same fornication, he allows second marriages to widows. For it is better to know a single husband, though he be a second or third, than to have many paramours. That is, it is more tolerable for a woman to prostitute herself to one man than to many. At all events, this is so if the Samaritan woman in John's Gospel, who said that she had her sick husband, was reproved by the Lord because he was not her husband. For where there are more husbands than one, the proper idea of a husband who is a single person is destroyed. At the beginning, one rib was turned into one wife, and they too, he says, shall be one flesh not three or four. Otherwise, how can they be any longer two if they are several? Lamech, a man of blood and a murderer, was the first who divided one flesh between two wives. For natricide and digamy were abolished by the same punishment, that of the deluge. The one was avenged seven times, the other seventy times seven. The guilt is as widely different as are the numbers. What the holiness of a second marriage is, appears from this, that a person twice married cannot be enrolled in the ranks of the clergy, and so the apostle tells Timothy, let none be enrolled as a widow under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man. The whole command concerns those widows who are supported on the alms of the church. The age is therefore limited, so that those only may receive the food of the poor who can no longer work. And at the same time, consider that she who has had two husbands, even though she be a widow, decrepit, and in want, is not a worthy recipient of the church's funds. But if she be deprived of the bread of charity, how much more is she deprived of that bread which cometh down from heaven, and of which if a man eat unworthily, he shall be guilty of outrage offered to the body and the blood of Christ. The passages, however, which I have adduced in support of my position, and in which it is permitted Two widows, if they so desire to marry again, are interpreted by some concerning those widows who had lost their husbands and were found in that condition when they became Christians. For supposing a person baptized and her husband dead, it would not be consistent if the apostle were to bid her marry another when he enjoins even those who have wives to be as though they had them not. And this is why the number of wives which a man may take is not defined, because when Christian baptism has been received, even though a third or fourth wife has been taken, she is reckoned as the first. Otherwise, if after baptism and after the death of the first husband a second is taken, why should not a sixth after the death of the third, fourth, and fifth, and so on? For it is possible that through some strange misfortune or by the judgment of God, cutting short repeated marriages, a young woman may have several husbands, while an old woman may be left a widow by her first husband in extreme age. The first Adam was married once, the second was unmarried. But the supporters of second marriages show us as their leader a third Adam who was twice married. 
But granted that Paul allowed second marriages, upon the same grounds it follows that he allows even third and fourth marriages. Our woman may marry as often as her husband dies. The apostle was forced to choose many things which he did not like. He circumcised Timothy and shaved his own head, practiced going barefoot, let his hair grow long, cut it at Centurie. And he had certainly chastised the Galatians and blamed Peter because, for the sake of Jewish observances, he separated himself from the Gentiles. As then in other points connected with the discipline of the church, he was a Jew to the Jews, a Gentile to the Gentiles, and was made all things to all men, that he might gain all. So too he allowed second marriages to incontinent persons, and did not limit the number of marriages in order that women, although they saw themselves permitted to take a second husband, in the same way as a third or fourth was allowed, might blush to take a second. At least they should be compared to those who were three or four times married. If more than one husband be allowed, it makes no difference whether he be a second or third, because there is no longer a question of single marriage. All things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. I do not condemn second nor third, nor pardon the expression eighth marriages. I will go still further and say that I welcome even a penitent whoremonger. Things that are equally lawful must be weighed in an even balance. End of chapters 10 through 15 of book 1.